Well, welcome to The Raw Roast, where we have real conversation about faith and life over a good cup of coffee. My name is Tucker Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. And today, uh, I have two guests on with me. I have John Carlson, who is no stranger to this show. Uh, John, this is your second time on the, yeah. the, on the podcast. Uh, John um, has been a, a longtime attender of Calvary, has, has taught in... Uh, a number of different uh, capacities at Calvary, and most recently just taught a course on prophets and false prophets. And uh, we'll uh, revisit that in just a second because uh, part of the uh, course, uh, the topic that we're talking about today was part of that uh, particular course. Uh, my other guest is uh, Michael Kowalowski. Michael is a college student and uh, is going to provide some context on this topic from the perspective of a college student. Gentlemen, thanks for both being on. Uh, this is a, it's fun to have a, a three-way dialogue. Um, this particular topic is on Christian nationalism. And, and John, in the course that you most recently taught at Calvary, you had a session on, on, um, on the prophet Jonah. And you saw a connection between Christian nationalism and the prophet Jonah. Can you flesh that out a little bit more? Sure. Um, a lot of commentators have identified Jonah as nationalist. And what they mean by that is um, he had loyalties to God, whom he served. He had loyalties to country. And sometimes his loyalties to country went way too far. And of course, in the story of Jonah, and for people who don't know the story of Jonah, let me brief you just a little bit. Um, he was called by God to go preach to one of the enemies of Israel. And he didn't want to go because of his patriotism, he really believed what's in the best interest of Israel is don't go. Let God's hammer of judgment smash them. Why should I go and preach to them and they can repent and so on? But God told him to go. We have a case here where his loyalty to country basically took precedence over obedience to God. He was what I called in that course one of the compromised prophets. A true prophet, absolutely. And God was very patient with him. But he let his love of country really get in the way of obedience to God. And uh, nationalism can do that. Uh, nationalism is very different from love for country. Um, it's basically where love for country kind of goes too far and becomes an idol in itself. Uh, if you want a, a deeper uh, analysis of that book and nationalism, I really recommend Tim Keller's book on um, the prodigal prophet. It's, it's really excellent. It was just reprinted. I don't know why he changed the title, but reprinted as um, Rediscovering Jonah. <laughs> but he really dives into it, and he does a superb job. Well, thank you, John. Is there a... Um is there an article or a resource that you found helpful that unpacks this idea of Christian nationalism? Because I think, you know, it's one of those phrases that that all three of us here, you know, in the room probably would have a slightly different definition. But yeah. is there a, is there some expert definition that can kind of cut through some of the noise? Yes, I really like um, the definition that uh, Christianity today has 
put forward. We hear the term a lot in the news because it just comes up in politics a lot. And there are people who um, want to promote it, who say, hey, if you're a Christian and you love your country, you are a Christian nationalist. But that, I think, really misses the point. Um, what Christianity Today um, has done, and uh, they had a, actually a podcast with Paul Miller to define it, uh, shortly after the um, insurrection two years ago in January, and then they asked him to do a follow-up article just recapping the definition, and I have that article in front of me here, and um, what they're describing is... Um, basically what's happening in the country today politically with regard to Christian nationalism. And it's not all flattering. Um, it's very different from Christianity, though. I mean, you know that when we talk about Christianity, we're talking about something absolutely good. But Christian nationalism is when something got off track and got sour. <laughs> and... Um, so that's, that's what this article's about, and I, it talks—well, let me read a little bit of the first paragraph there. Uh, what is Christian nationalism? How is it different from Christianity? How is it different from patriotism? How should Christians think about nations, especially about the United States? So in order to understand you know, their definition— um, they are taking each of these questions separately. And um, the first distinction they make is about patriotism. Um, it says patriotism is the love of country. It's different from nationalism, which is an argument about how to define our country. And um, It seems like a crucial yeah. distinction, that difference between yeah. providing definition to something mm -hmm. and one's uh, made it, made, uh, emotions towards or their feelings yes. towards one's country is, yeah. right. are, are very different things. Yeah. Um, loving your country is just natural. Yeah. And outside of a, a, just a few exceptions, I'm sure that everybody loves their country. Yeah. Um, one thing that Tim Keller mentioned, and I just finished that book on, on Jonah in his last chapter, is another resource um, that I, I haven't read. I'd still like to commend it because I love C.S. Lewis, and I've read a lot of what he's written. He wrote something called Four Loves, a series of essays. Mm -hmm. One of those four loves is love of country. Mm. And he discusses it in depth about what it is and how it can go sour because, of course, he lived through World War I yeah. and he saw a lot of things about how love of country can go very wrong, <laughs> but very insightful. It's important for us to think this through and understand the difference between, you know, love of country that's natural and healthy and love of country where it becomes a false god. Mm. And we start disobeying God. So patriotism is different from nationalism and certainly different from Christianity. Now, he says about nationalism that in order to define 
uh, or to construct a nationalist view, you have to define who is and who is not part of the country. That's one of the challenges. When you describe nationalism, you are you cannot escape an us versus them mentality. You just can't. It's part of nationalism. Uh, for example, white nationalism says that, you know, true Americans are white Americans. If you're not white, you're not one of the true Americans. Trying to define what is America on the basis of race. Um, Christian nationalism is the belief that um, the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. And although that means a lot of different things, one thing that is just across the board for people who call themselves Christian nationalists and pursue the agenda is that Christianity should enjoy a privileged position in the public square. Um, I even <laughs> saw um, a, an agenda item for, for the midterms that basically said, we promote religious liberty for Christians. It's actually what it said, which means, of course, it's not really religious liberty for everyone. Yeah. It's a privileged place for Christianity in America. That seems to be the core agenda of all Christian nationalism, no matter how you define it. Michael, I want to let you have the opportunity to step in here. Um, you know, from a college student perspective, and, you know, you, you're uh, a Christian um, follower of Jesus, a college student, you're interning here at Calvary. What, um, what are some of the things you're hearing from people your own age, your, you know, your colleagues around this topic of, of politics and how Christianity relates to politics and perhaps uh, Christian nationalism specifically? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's been a very interesting, uh, last few years for me at college going through, um, obviously having, uh, the insurrection occur, going through COVID, going through the, um, abortion, um, laws being overturned and all the arguments going around that. And while I think that these kind of large topics are always going to be um, coming and going and being argued over. Um, what I've seen for my for my time as a college student, a Christian college student attending a Christian college, um, is that they've been very divisive, and I think that the Christian nationalism, um, kind of like the pull towards it, towards finding a, um, a like a what they're presenting is a like steadfast community. Um, maybe as like a falsehood where they're trying to, um, as you said, John, um, when you state of, when you define a nation, you're defining who is in and who is out of the nation. Um, they're trying to find their identity and all that as they're going through, uh, college, as they're learning and being exposed to so many different beliefs. Um, people my age are really trying to find where their home base is. Mm -hmm. And I've seen... Uh, this Christian nationalism idea um, kind of start to take place in some um, some of my peers just because they may feel like they don't have a study foundation and they may feel like 
that is something they can latch on something to. they can latch on to and it's a very um a very like fierce and uh bold political position um that's presented in front of them and they might not be seeing all of the detrimental effects that yeah. um come from that yeah there's um another book in fact uh it's mentioned by uh paul miller in that podcast defining Defining Christian Nationalism. And that's a book by Whitehead called Taking America Back for God. And that's his description. Uh, He spends a lot of time in that book defining Christian nationalism, but the title is very pointed. It really brings our attention to the fact that in order to define Christian nationalism, um, you have to define who who is taking the country back from whom? That's the point. And how are you going to do it? Of course, politically, it's political power. But who is taking it back from whom? Hmm. We have to actually ponder that. If that's our mentality, we have to take our country back. Who's we and who are you taking it back from? It comes down to who do you think are the true Christians And who do you think you have to take it back from? And that us versus them dichotomy is always dangerous. Because if we had to start thinking, okay, if we win the war and we take it back from them, who are we going to appoint as our leader? Hmm. Do we have a sinless person to do that? You know, these these attempts have failed in the past because of corruption and the sin nature even among Christians. Maybe the, this question could be uh, to both of you and Michael you started to hit on it a little bit uh, from the you know that college student perspective. Why do you feel like there is a draw to Christian nationalism for many Christians? Um, you know in college it's it's a little interesting because you know you're you're hearing like you were mentioning you're hearing a lot of new ideas for the first time. And there's probably this identity formation that's going on as you're, you're confronted with those. Um, so I think that that's something that we could certainly unpack a little bit more. Um, for maybe those post-college, you know, the, uh, you know, those who are kind of in the, in the midst of life, why is there such an attractive appeal to Christian nationalism for many Christians? You have a response? <laughs> I think he aimed the question at you, Mike. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can really speak to the second part of your question, where you're talking about people in the midst of life. Um, but yeah, I can speak definitely speak more to um, the college perspective. Um, I would say, kind of just to reiterate a little bit and follow up on what you said, there's lots of ideas being presented to us. Um we are young adults. We are of voting age. We don't have the guidance of our parents if we're off at school. And we're really just surrounded by our peers that may or may not know more than we do or may or may not think they know more than we do. Um, and so really we're presented with a unique position of uh, just trying to figure out what everything is for ourselves. And when we're looking at um, the events of the world and we're looking online for facts or looking at the news, 
we're really going off whatever facts or bases we're seeing and the popular opinions or positions that are presented as such um, can be really quite appealing, but we may not know all the basis behind that or have really good um, guidance of elders or uh, lived people to speak to us. John, how about you? I mean, are there maybe for those uh, kind of in the midst of life, why, why yeah. is there such a, a draw to Christian nationalism? Well, um, first of all, I think there's a deep dissatisfaction about the way things are. And it should be that way because things are fallen. You know, this world is uh, sin nature is rampant and injustice is prevalent and violence and everything. Um, but God has put it in our heart to want something better. Um, and that's, that's just something that's deep in the heart of every one of us because God put it there. We know that we would thrive in a world that was different. And Christian nationalism says, we're going to do this for you. We are going to make this a Christian nation and establish Christian law, and we are going to fix it. And the desire is um, just something that the prophets saw in visions, and we know that God will, in fact, make it happen in his time, in his way. But let me read just one spot from uh, the prophet Isaiah that describes this. There are several. This one's from chapter 2, starting in the second verse. It says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the vision he's presenting there is that when God rules and people follow his law, the world's going to be a better place. We all know that intuitively. But then we try to bring it about through governmental action (laughs) while... um, Sin nature is rampant. Um, We have that desire for something better, and somebody's offering it to us. So maybe uh, a way of thinking about this is that the desire shouldn't be ignored. Right. But we're getting the solution wrong Mm -hmm. um, to to meet that particular desire. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I look at a passage like this, and one of the things that I'm— is an idea that has been floating in my mind that I don't have I haven't fully fleshed it out yet, but I don't think that we read scripture um, Christ centered enough or to get I guess more technical uh, a Christotelic 
understanding of Scripture that the, the end destination, the ending, the goal of Scripture is Christ. So we look at a passage like Isaiah chapter 2 and see, how, well, how is that going to come to f- fruition? How is that going to come into being? Well, Christ is the resolution. Christ is the one who brings that ultimately into being. But I think what I hear you saying, John, is that I think sometimes we like to substitute Christ for Christian nationalism or some other means that we try to, to implement to bring about what we see in something like an Isaiah 2. Yeah, I think it's. I think what you said is very interesting about how we read scripture. I think one thing that I've noticed um, in my demographic is that there is um, there is a common uh, practice, I guess, of reading scripture to uh, better yourself or to revise yourself, and that may be the goal more than reading the scripture to um, learn about Christ and have that. Um, bettering yourself be uh, as a result of that. And I think maybe reading that and trying to learn, um, oh, like this is how I should be acting. These is, this is what I should be pursuing. And then paired with that, uh, the discontentment that you mentioned, um, as well as as a young adult, um, having the position of one day I'm going to be the next generation of leaders in our nation, um, next generation of Christian leaders. And while I have a long way to go for that, uh, when you're surrounded by your peers that are all the same age and you're all feeling um, that same way, there is perhaps a desire to um, make that happen as soon as possible. There's the temptation to try and take take action into your own hands and um, pursue certain courses such as Christian nationalism that may present themselves as uh, solutions or um, a way to fix certain issues in our nation. Let me get back to this article because that is a very important question. And um, defining Christian nationalism um, as a political movement. And in fact, I'm going to read uh, one of his definitions on the last page of that article. Christian nationalism is a political ideology focused on the national identity of the United States. Um, And it is, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in politics because love of country is a good thing. being an influence for change in our country is a good thing. Um, God calls people to serve him in many ways and calls many people into the public sector for service. Um, but keeping God first <laughs> is important. He uses, um, now this is from his very last paragraph. Um, can Christians be politically engaged without being Christian nationalists. I think this is really important. So let me read a little bit of that paragraph. Yes, American Christians in the past were exemplary in helping establish the American experiment, and many American Christians worked to end slavery and segregation and other evils. They did so because they believed Christianity required them to work for justice. But they worked to advance Christian principles, not Christian power or Christian culture. 
which is the key distinction between normal Christian political engagement and Christian nationalism. We can promote Christian values, especially justice, because the prophets just hammer on that over and over and over. Um, but a political movement that says we have to make sure that Christians are the one in power. They're the ones who have to make the laws, enforce the laws, interpret the laws, teach in our school. You know, we have to have Christians in power everywhere is not the same as accepting a pluralistic society and being, as Jesus called us, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. You know, we are here to make a difference, not necessarily to run the place. Because that's going to happen in God's time, in God's way, and it's not yet. I think with what you just said and circling back to Jonah, too, mm -hmm. um, we see Jonah doing that despite his flaws and despite his um, his desire for Nineveh to ultimately receive uh, destruction and the judgment of the Lord. Um, we see him go and um, be a prophet to them and ask them to repent. And rather than pursue his initial desire, which I suppose he did initially pursue it, to let the Lord's judgment fall on them and have them be destroyed, he went to them and was political. He went to them and asked them to repent and abstain from their ways and change. And uh, they did so. And we see afterwards that he's still frustrated with that outcome. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately the Lord rebukes him in that also. And so I think, mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that you say that we are capable of doing that. And you said the prophets um, tell us to do so. And like that, there's an example of right there in the story that we started with. Um, help me follow that again. There's an Absolutely. example of what, of him you, being political? Yes. Being, being political without the nationalism piece. So he tried, mm -hmm. um, initially he was very much a nationalist. Mm hmm um, and you could say he was throughout, but I think when he follows what the Lord is saying to go and preach to them, mm -hmm. he's doing so in um, a political way, being a Christian politician and telling them to change their ways, mm -hmm. asking them to um, repent. Mm -hmm. And um, then when they do so, um, he's... Kind of reverts back to his old ways. <laughs> he reverts back to his own ways yeah. um, and was rebuked for doing so and yeah. eventually, um, you know, yeah. has that. But maybe you can speak more to what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I think I follow what you're saying. Definitely he spoke to them as an ambassador for God. He was mm -hmm. a prophet and he told them about God's judgment. They did turn away. That's similar to Christians being involved in politics in one sense, that Christians can absolutely represent Christian principles and the burden of the Lord and speak that word to all the people. Um, we have to understand that all the people are capable of hearing and responding to God's word. Um, we don't know that the people of Nineveh mm -hmm. necessarily even converted to Jewish faith. I don't think they did. But they turned away from the violence and wickedness that was bringing God's judgment upon them. They turned away 
from the evil path that was <laughs> going to end their country real soon or their city. But um, when we present Christian values, things like justice um, especially, we have to give non-Christians the benefit of the doubt. that They can hear this and decide to do the right thing. If we have it in our head that nobody but Christians are able to do the right thing, that's wrong-headed. That is not consistent with the image of God being, you know, in each one of us. We are responsible and capable of choosing to do the right thing. And we don't have to insist that they become Christians first or there's something invalid <laughs> about the virtue of a good life. And perhaps... Perhaps it'd be more for fair to say for my um, what I was saying prior mm -hmm. is that Jonah is doing this ministry despite the fears for his nation, mm -hmm. despite the fear that um, if Nineveh is given more time, you know, more evil could be done mm -hmm. to his nation. And despite he might be killed yeah. if he goes there, um, yeah. those fears that um, the Christian naturalists may have that. Um, the other is going to take their power right. away or is going to harm mm -hmm. them. He is following the Lord's will to still minister to them and mm -hmm. still uh, bring God's love and mercy to them, whether yeah. whether they end up converting or not. Mm -hmm. um, he is still preaching to them despite those fears that he has. Yeah. As we, yes. as we draw our conversation to a close, I know we could probably go a whole another <laughs> half hour here. <clears throat> I want to ask one uh, question that I think is is a good practical question as we as we think about what's next. Like, how do we move forward? And that's the question, what role should the church play in, um, not in politics, but what role should the church play in discipling its congregation um, when it comes to this topic? Does that question make sense? Yes. And... Um I've asked that question, and that's why I taught this course on prophets and false prophets, because um, I personally don't believe that the church should become the arm of a political movement. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that at all. Um, I think that tends to get us off track mm -hmm. and even compromised. However... I believe that it is our obligation to talk about the biblical foundations that are at stake. And um, that's why I focused on the prophets and the false prophets. What was the message of the prophets to all the nations as well as to Israel? And the false prophets, what did they do instead? Well, they just cozied up to the king because the pay is really good. doesn't matter if you're talking uh, on behalf of God or not. You know, they, they had a, a good deal there, the false prophets. But, uh, and then we have compromised prophets. But also the New Testament gives us an important foundation too, um, above and beyond the foundation that the prophets give us. And that is, how do you build God's kingdom and Jesus taught us we build God's kingdom by proclaiming the gospel. Um, the kingdom grows. A farmer goes out to sow his seed. Some of that seed falls on good soil and produces enormous fruit. 
Um, that's how the kingdom of God grows. And he will establish his kingdom on earth at his return, but there's going to be a lot of judgment first and his authority, and he will do it. And in the meantime, he did not teach his disciples to pursue advancing the kingdom of God through government action. He had the chance to do it with Rome, and he didn't. He, he, in fact, he told <laughs> Pilate, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be here and fight for me. Right now, we see a lot of Christians fighting for different political leaders, even committing acts of violence on their behalf, as if they're supporting the kingdom of God. But this is not the example Jesus gave us. That's good, John. Michael, any final thoughts on that particular question? What role should the church play in discipling its congregation when it comes to this topic? Yeah, uh, well, as a young adult, I would say... um, just talking about these hard topics, uh, bringing definitions such as the one that uh, we spoke to today from Christianity Today. Um, as a young adult, we might hear these terms on the news, and when we hear that, we might hear it from a pro-Christian nationalism standpoint, or we may hear it from an opposite standpoint. Um, and regardless of that, we are seeing these topics that are being brought up uh, in the news politically and otherwise every single day and we may not know where the backing for these comes from and so I think from the standpoint of the church just to be an educator for us to talk about these topics to um, bring these um, examples of um, wise leaders such as the prophets and you know even their faults that they have on such um, such subjects. I think that's really helpful and will do a lot of good to our future. That's good. I, I want to end um, I want to end with a passage that I think is relevant to our discussion. Um, I, I guess I commend the entire book of First Peter because I think it really speaks to this whole topic. Um, not necessarily Christian nationalism specifically, but the topic of where should we ultimately find our identity? And it's in verse 9 of chapter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And then he uses that phrase, a holy nation, um, which is, is a fantastic description. Um, he goes on, he says, A people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, this uh, verses 9 and 10. So I think it's a reminder that ultimately our, our identity is, is as citizens of Christ, of members of Christ's body, that, that ultimately we could think of it as uh, the identity that we have as, as followers of Christ is infinitely more important than any any identity that we have as, as, as part of a particular nation. But when we understand that, I like how Russell Moore describes it, that we can be Americans best when we recognize that we're not Americans first, is what he says. Right. Oh, like we can, we can be better Americans if we understand ultimately where our identity is located. Yeah. So that passage from First Peter um, 
where Peter says, you are a holy nation, that nation is the church, right? That's how I understand That's, that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, again, it's, it's reading scripture through the lens of this is being fulfilled in the person of Christ. Yes. We're members of the church because we're united to Christ. Um, and I think, yeah, that's the nation that's being spoken mm-hmm. about uh, there. Well, gentlemen, this has been a good conversation. I feel like we almost need a part two to something <laughs> like this just because of how big of a topic it is. Um, are there any f- resources that you would want to recommend in addition to this article? You've mentioned Tim Keller's book, Prodigal Prophet. Um, I mentioned Russell Moore. The, the quote that mm-hmm. I mentioned comes from uh, his book called Onward. Uh, I forget the subtitle. Uh, Michael, are there any resources that you've come across that have been helpful when it comes to this topic of of Christian nationalism? When it comes to this specifically, um, I would say that I haven't, but I would just encourage anyone listening to um, do solid research into it. So they, um, now that, you know, maybe if this is the first time they've been introduced to it in depth in this podcast, do some further research, find out what... um, maybe the major viewpoints of it are and, you know, talk to your pastors, talk to your ministers about it, ask them, um, get good guidance from uh, your elders, those that you trust. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate uh, your time today. It's been good to have you on. And um, John, good to have you back on the show. And Michael, good to have you on the show for the first time today. Well, thank you all for listening. If you have any questions about Calvary Church, I encourage you to visit calvarychurch.us. We have two services at both our Roseville and White Bear campuses on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock and 1030. Uh, We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, If you have any questions about this particular episode today, we would love to hear questions or comments. Uh, If you have topics that you would like us to address on future episodes, we'd be happy to hear those as well. We look forward to uh, having you join us next time.